Welcome to episode 36 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, and uh, I have a brand new guest and somebody I just met probably about 10 minutes ago, Carmelita Valdez McCoy. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for being on. This was another one of those ones where I, I was listening to Film Feast and uh, I had Matt on the show uh, talking about uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone. And I was listening to your episode, it was probably a little while ago that you were talking about Seven and you were talking about David Fincher. And I think you you seem to me like you have a connection to 90s film. I always want to kind of seek out people because that's kind of my time. So many people love the 80s, but the 90s are when I got so heavily into movies. And I also like, I just liked your perspective on Seven and talking about Fight Club. I thought you'd be a fun person to have a conversation with about movies too. I also listened to the one where you talked about Mandy, the Nicolas Cage film. And I hadn't seen it before that episode, but I went and sought it out after. Oh, awesome. What did you think? I was a little little bit more mixed than you do and I feel That's like okay. hurting people's feelings it, I, I love the setup I like the first half it went nuts at the end but that's <laughs> probably a, a good thing because it's a Nicolas Cage movie and it is no it, you can't hurt my feelings that's a movie that I I know I take my I say I'm mildly obsessed with it I take my love of it kind of a little far and I but it's one of those where I get when people are mixed or don't like it because it yeah. is it's an acquired taste it, and it, it's it's a rough movie it's a you know capital h horror movie mm-hmm. but i think it is one if if people can handle that then they should check it out i mean i i would never dissuade somebody from seeing it i i think it's interesting and it was nice to see the build-up like cage is kind of restraint yeah. but then it gets more and more the cage rage is, is late in the film he builds up to it it's not early on and I, I like those remote horror i'm a bit of a sucker for those those pieces so we're not talking about nicholas cage today uh, we are we'll be talking about one movie though that nicholas cage nearly was uh, the lead in at uh, one point mm. Constantine. but we're talking about religious horror when i contacted you to see if you would be on the show then you you sent me a few ideas for themes and i then i took from my movie collection and tried to to work together and so you basically chose religious horror you did some other ideas that we might explore later on too but what was it about that topic that interests you i'm a i'm a big fan of horror as a genre Mm -hmm. and i like all types of horror movies but hands down my favorite the thing that really gets me is religious horror i uh my favorite horror movie of all time is the exorcist I love The Omen. I love possession films. I grew up Catholic and I feel like I I think it's one of those things where that whether you continue to practice or not or how devout you were to begin with or later on, there's something about it, about that kind of early education that there's this, I don't know, there's this fascination with the supernatural and demons and possession and angels and like the there's something kind of mystical about (laughs) about the the realm of the supernatural that just really appeals to me and I think too because of my upbringing like when I was a kid I remember that feeling of like could this stuff be real (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so in my early my early viewings of religious horror films there was always that like I know it's a movie and it's not real but but it feels kind of real really, yeah. <laughs> so it's this is the kind of horror that gets under my skin I love slashers I love all kinds of other things yeah. but this is my favorite 
and you answered two of the follow-up questions I had right there. Like one is I was going to mention, and I think I've said it on the show before. My favorite horror movie is The Exorcist, so we are totally along there. And I was going to ask if you had a background growing up in the church, as as do I. So I I find because I I talk to other people who not. And they sometimes find religious horror movies a little bit uh, hokey or, mm. or laughable. But somehow I get, cre- even when it's not a particularly well-executed religious horror movie, I get creeped out by it. I, I, yeah. I, I really do. There is something where I, I get a feeling. And this this round of watching The Six, there's still a moment in one of these movies where, I, you know, no matter what the setting is, I get these goosebumps and I get this really, like, it's this horrible feeling, but it's this wonderful horrible feeling because you know the filmmakers everybody did their job oh absolutely so i am a bit of a i am a little bit of a i don't know if the the word is sucker for for this this uh subgenre of horror so uh and i didn't have a show maybe in my early planning i did but i didn't really have a show i have kind of general supernatural shows but not Mm. specifically religious so this was uh this was great and i i don't think i've had a horror episode for a while here so this uh this is gonna be a lot of fun no i'm Uh, so glad yeah, no, I, I've been really excited about it. The other thing I, again, not planned, but I was thinking about earlier today is we're actually covering five decades of films among yeah. the six films. So we're going from the 60s to that first decade of the 21st century here. We're actually going to be starting off with the newest of the movies, then we'll go to the oldest and then everything in between. So we're going to have Constantine from uh, the only 21st century movie that we're looking at. Then we're going back to the 1960s with Rosemary's Baby. Then we have two movies from the 1970s, the first of which is the Amityville Horror from 1979, the year I was born. So I guess I have an affection for that movie year, even though I wasn't that aware of what was going on with movies at the time. Lord of the Corn. You might not be able to see it. I'm wearing a Stephen King shirt today. And oh yeah. As we record it, Stephen King has a new book out. No, I'm a Stephen King fan, but whether I'm a fan of the Children of the Corn or is a, maybe another story. We'll uh, find out. Then we're gonna look at controversially The Exorcist Part Two: Heretic. Oh, I can't um, wait. And then we're ending off with Jacob's Ladder. I, a couple of these are just horror classics to me. And and then there's some others that it was interesting. I spot all of the problems with. Mm. I still had a good time watching this group of six, and hopefully that was the same thing for you. No, it was. I so several of the films we're going to be talking about were ones that I love and that I revisit. There were a couple I had never seen before, but I knew like all about them, mm-hmm. and it was so it was really cool to finally watch them. Yeah. And then there was one that I hadn't seen in ages. And I remembered liking it, but I wasn't sure if I was still going to feel the same way. So it was like really cool to go through these six films and even the ones that aren't perfect have some issues. It was still a good time. Yeah. And hopefully there'll be a chance to promote some movies that maybe some people haven't checked out before or haven't thought about in a long time. But you're absolutely yeah. right. It's, it's like one of the themes of my show is you, you watch a movie years ago and you can either like think, oh, I misjudged it when I first saw it in theaters or when I first rented it. And years later, I actually like it more. Or sometimes it can diminish big time. Yeah, thank you so much for being on, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting into these reviews. Well, me too. I really appreciate the invite. I think I've been listening to the show, and it's just, it's, 
it's such a cool idea for you to be doing this. And I was telling you before we started that it's pretty brave. Like I've, I have like a measure of power here. You do. I'm and not going to let it go to my head, but I really appreciate being like a part, like you're letting me throw some input in here. Let's start talking about Constantine. Let's. Cold. Sure about this? No. <laughs> Mr. Constantine, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I know the circles you travel in, the occult, exorcisms. Easy there, hero. That's Dragon's Breath. I thought you couldn't get it anymore. Oh, I, uh, <clears throat> I know a guy who knows a guy. I thought that you could at least point me in the right direction. Yeah, okay, sure. Please. What if I told you that God and the devil made a wager for the souls of all mankind? No direct contact with humans, that would be the rule. Just influence, see who would win. Demons stay in hell, angels in heaven. They call it the balance. I need to see what you see. You do this, there's no turning back. You see them, they see you, understand? podcast I reference regularly rank and review a lot of these I've reviewed on that show but on a, a show about the can the best of like the 2000s that first decade of the 21st century I always awkwardly uh, call it I did review on rank and review Constantine starring uh, Canadian Keanu Reeves who's had such a resurgence in popularity oh, what I've said about Keanu Reeves I said that recently in a review of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in this mm. 80s I did is he can be very charming he's a great movie star but you have to cast him in the right material I think when he attempted to do Shakespeare in Much Ado About Nothing that didn't go that well he also was in Canada he played Hamlet and I didn't hear great things about that and sometimes in a, some melodramas he comes across a little bit sleepy I guess but in science fiction movies and some horror some action series I think he does have good taste in material he also is very good at playing uh, villains and, and I've said this before the Sam Raimi movie The Gift he's scary a 
abusive character, Neon Demon, which is a movie I, I oh, he's great in that. Well, yeah, and he's a nasty, and he's apparently a nice guy, but he's not afraid to play both a hero but also a nasty character. So I appreciate him. I was very, very negative about Constantine in that earlier review. This time, maybe I wasn't because I wasn't trying as hard because I've already reviewed it and I've already looked at it. I just sat back, knew what I was getting into again, and I just had a better time with it. And I think if you approach this movie as if it's a cartoon, I think, and things are really big and over the top, and you're not too worried about the source material, because I know that was the big downfall, was how untrue, or I don't know if untrue is the right word there, to the source material. Unfaithful to the uh, source material, which I confess I'm not as familiar with. That's why this movie wasn't terribly successful. But I think you could do worse as far as just an entertainment. If you sit back and enjoy what's happening. I have a lot of criticisms of it, but I say that revisiting it, I had a better time than the last time I watched Constantine. So that's where I start with it. I'll just do a, a really quick synopsis. Keanu Reeves is Constantine. He's a supernatural exorcist, and he helps a policewoman try to prove that her twin sister's death was not a suicide, but it, it was something something more. Where, where do you stand on Constantine? So I love this movie. Good. I can't help myself. And I, I saw this in the movie theater, and at that time, I had not, I didn't have a prior relationship with the Hellblazer comics. Mm-hmm. I have since read them. So, and having read them, I now, not all of them, but quite a few, I now understand. where people were like really up in arms so my first advice to anyone is do not think of this as an adaptation of hellblazer it might be like the faintest inspiration (laughs) this john constantine is not that john constantine it's different the whole thing is different the setting is different there's just very little that that's really like a direct take from the comics so i'll start there but i you know i think visually this this movie is looks great the great cast giving awesome yeah. performances like so I was sold. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. I yeah. and it's one that I revisit every few years. So I've seen it a few times now. And I'm it's always just kind of fun to watch. And I like I can recognize some elements of it that could probably be done better. But I think if I, you know, when I when I just want to sit down and watch something fun and kind of immerse myself in a fantasy world and all of the supernatural elements that this movie provides, like I'm like, I'm in. It's a good time. So I'll I'll, I'll bring in some criticisms and Please. I want you to shoot me down with each and every one of them as much as <laughs> And I might agree. Yeah. I might agree on some of them. Yeah. You never know. I'll start maybe I'll start off with something positive. My favorite performance is actually Ra- Rachel Weiss. I, I, I mm. like what she does. She's an Academy Award. There's several Academy Award winning actors in this movie. But I, I mean, she plays the twin and all of that, which might be a little bit of a, I'm not sure it's really a gimmick. It's an important plot point in this, this movie version. But I like how, I, I feel like some of the other really strong actors come out and they play kind of the two-dimensional cartoon. But I get the, like the full arc of this character. And some of the scenes that she does are, are really difficult. There's the sequence where she has to go and have that that vision of hell and everything when she's underwater and being held underwater and you see that panic in her eyes. That's just solid film acting, but I haven't known her to give a really bad performance ever. So, and another, you know, British person playing 
and American, I think, fairly well. Some they're so good at that. Not all. There are some actors who will they will over enunciate the American accent and feels a little bit over the top. But you know, she does a good job of making it pretty pretty subtle. I think. How did you feel about our our visions of hell? So I think the CGI holds up pretty good, considering Um, some of the demons. The CGI is a little funky, but like I'm fine with that. I really like I like the mode of getting there and and getting to see this other realm and then how they're able to pop back up. I think it's really fun. I think when I think back to that time, I was trying to think when I was watching it about other films from the same time and what the CGI looked like. And I was drawing a blank and make trying to make a comparison. But I, I think that it I think that it holds up. I think that it holds up pretty well. And I, and I think there was a pretty good mix. You know, you have some of those small scenes where they're in hell and, you know, some other little bits and pieces where demons come into the earth realm but but I think it's a really good balance it's not a film that's completely done in CGI which I appreciate it's you know contained in these certain scenes and I appreciate that I don't know why I I just haven't and and I again I think I was working in a movie theater when this came out so I would Mm. see the end of the movie a lot just before you know people left the theater and I had to clean the theater so I don't remember exactly how I reacted to it because it was probably as cutting edge as they could have at that time and it probably looked really good but I, it does tend to distract me that kind of attack that happens at, at night uh, it's across from that gas station yeah that sequence and I for some reason I just am not as crazy about that particular vision of hell but it's I think it's just a subjective thing but how does it again does how does it compare to kind of the the visuals connected to the source material see again it's like they're just worlds apart. It's just very yeah. different. That's not you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, yep. it's just completely different. We'll be talking about a Stephen King adaptation pretty soon here and the source material and the, the film are, uh, are are also worlds apart. One of the one of the performances that I again maybe I just need more background. I Pruitt Taylor Vince like I I, yeah. I he has he's that priest. I like that actor. I, I like seeing him uh, in a lot of movies. He also appears in Jacob's Ladder, which we'll review later. But I felt like he was so over the top. Now I. I think maybe I got that a little bit more because he's being attacked. Right. I mean, he is. He's very like, he's very twitchy Mm -hmm. in this role. And it's interesting that he is also in Jacob's Ladder, which we'll talk about. And we can, we'll be able to contrast those performances. Yeah. Because he's kind of twitchy in that movie too. A little more subtle. And you know, and he's not the only one. It's like Tilda Swinton is very like on. Peter Stormare, also very big performance. So it's kind of interesting that all of these kind of major character actors, you know, very well established, great at their craft. And they're all surround Keanu Reeves, whose performance is very subdued. <laughs> and yes. very, very quiet. So it's it's really interesting the the juxtaposition of of that. And and I get what you're saying. It is a little like it's a little over the top. I I really like that Father Hennessy character. I I like that he's you know his nerves are so frazzled and he's an alcoholic and he goes through withdrawal mm-hmm. and and that he's so paranoid and like I I connect with it, but I get what you're saying. It yeah. is like it's a it's a little over the top. What, one of the other prominent actors in there is the always uh, interesting Shia LaBeouf. Oh yeah, a version of of him, controversial figure, probably less controversial at this time. Uh, 
I, I was puzzled because he he had a what I saw as a bit of a, a nothing role. Like he's supposed to be mentored by Constantine, and then he finally gets something to do kind of deep in the third act. But then I, you know, I, I forgot to mention spoilers, and there might be swearing in this episode, so just be prepared for that. But it seemed pretty predictable what was going to end up happening to him. But there wasn't much of And I, I just found him a bit annoying. But I don't know if that's just me projecting. It's not just you. Okay. Good. Good. I'm with you on that one. Okay. And I... I don't have, yeah, Shia LaBeouf is one of those actors that, you know, he's, he's, he's done some projects that it's like, I like really want to like the project he's working on. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give him a chance. And I don't know if it's some of the real world bleeding into, into his performances or my perception of his performances, or if it's the roles that he gets, I don't know what it is, but yeah, his character in this is super annoying. And I feel like there's so many balls in the air in this movie, right? Yeah. And I did one of my other criticisms, I think the movie has like three or four false endings, which annoyed me the very first time years, even before I was re reviewing it, when I first saw it, thought, okay, no, we're, we're still going. Okay. And that character is yeah, coming. We're not done. Now we're going to have a long scene with this and like, like, let's wrap it up, which I'm not normally like that. I mean, I, I watch four hour movies <laughs> crying out loud, but I, I feel like that entire character could be removed from the film. And we really have, wouldn't have lost anything. Um, I agree. And I think that could be the case with a lot of others. If they were trying to set up a franchise, maybe they were trying to set up a, a franchise or a series or something. There's the guy who gets all those holy relics and gives them to uh, Constantine, and then he uses them in battle at different points too. Mm -hmm. uh, and the tragic story of that guy, and that's I think well acted and everything, but it's just an, another thing. Like they keep going from place to place to place. Keanu Reeves and and Rachel Weisz, and they it all kind of adds up to this big climax but we have so much going on in like the hospital there and in, the, in at the end of the movie that it just exhausted me maybe it's maybe that's mm. sort of the right term in there there's some really really cool stuff like one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he puts holy water in the sprinkler system yeah well, that's his way uh like because him and Shia LaBeouf go into to battle all of these demons and set the sprinkler off and then that that gives them a bit of an advantage. That was a really cool idea. It reminded me of some of those creative kills that they have in a zombie film or something. But Yeah, yeah. And there's some little creative moments like that towards the beginning of the film. You know, he's performing an exorcism and there's a yeah. creative way using a mirror that he, he goes through that. I really like the scenes in Papa Midnight's Club. Mm -hmm. Visually, I think it's beautiful. And I also kind of, I like the banter between those characters. Yeah. And they kind of, they bring in some of the mythology and i i forget if they had designs on creating a franchise i don't recall but i wouldn't be surprised and i remember after seeing this the first time thinking oh they'll for sure do more of these movies and then they didn't there's yeah. so much hate directed at this mm -hmm. movie i i feel maybe the studio gave up on it if i remember correctly it it was kind of in the first two or three months and that's kind of where they dump movies that maybe genre movies that they don't believe in every once in a while there's one that's like extraordinary that when you look at the studio like how could you just leave it out for a Feb february release but i 
I, I would say like it's not short of fun. And if you're looking again, if you're looking for something that is fun and you know, you probably put your brain on hold a little bit and as as you said, appreciate the visuals. And that that exorcism scene at the beginning has really grown on me. Like all of the details in there mm. are absolutely brilliant and quite well well directed as well. So I feel like this is maybe a movie that didn't get a fair chance. And maybe I went along on the you get influenced by the media and the reviews at the time a little bit and maybe I was coming in the first couple times I watched this my arms crossed oh this is going to be one of those really bad Keanu Reeves movies mm. sitting you know I watched it on my iPad at the lake pretty relaxed and like I'm just going to watch this and give it another chance and I'm happy to say like it's not my favorite movie of the six we're talking about but it is definitely better than what I uh, originally thought of and I'm happy to know that you really enjoy this movie yeah I do it's it's one that like it's one that I I know is kind of a sure thing when I want to put something on that's going to be fun to watch this is one I know that I'm going to have fun this is one of those movies I like to watch when like I'm sick when you just like you just kind of want to snuggle up and watch something that that makes you feel good and and that you kind of you already know beat for beat what's going to happen and you can just go along for the ride and enjoy it this is that for me and I I agree with you Rachel Weiss gives a great performance I think Keanu Reeves if you keep in mind that this version of John Constantine is completely different from the comics. This iteration of John Constantine, I think Keanu does a good job. I think he conveys the kind of tortured, cynical character that you need him to be in this role. Like, I think it works. And I think the juxtaposition of, of his character with Rachel Weiss's character works really well. And I think that Peter Stormare is like one of my favorite Lucifers ever. He only gets a little bit of scream time, but it's very memorable. He came in with his own costume, I guess. He had a whole vision of how it would be. I, I think the first time I saw it, I'm, I'm still trying to warm up to that performance. I think mm-hmm. I thought it was a bit much, but I, it again, is I a bit much. but I, it, if this is viewed as a cartoon type of film, then that's perfectly acceptable, as are a lot of the bigger notes that Tilda Swinton plays and some of the other actors, then that works. And so that's another one where I, I keep wanting to love that performance because I love the actor. I mean, one of my favorite yeah. movies, Fargo, of course, which uh, nice. brought him a ton of work for years and years after. So, so I, I, I think we both like Constantine and I, I think people, if they have the right mindset, will enjoy it. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think when you talk about your, your initial experience with it, I think a lot of people share in that experience of kind of, you know, hearing that it wasn't that great or, or, you know, hearing some of the controversy around it being an adaptation. It's hard not to be influenced by that stuff. Maybe I would have had a different experience if I hadn't have been reading as many reviews back then as I, as I do now. Sure. Anything else? else you like to say about Constantine? No, I just really enjoy it and it was fun to watch it again. Paramount Pictures presents Hey, let's make love. Co-starring John Cassavetes. Let's have a baby. Oh, honey, for God's sakes, don't cry, all right? I won't. I won't. (laughs) Well, 
wonderful warrior, young and healthy. I have lots of children. Madame and Monsieur shall have the dessert after all. Mousse au chocolat. Or as many calls it, chocolate mouse. It's delicious. It has an undertaste. A chalky undertaste. Nice. Sleep is what you need. Good night's sleep. You better go down below, miss. This is no dream. This is really happening. Written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski. From the best-selling novel by Ira Levin. Ruth Gordon. Sidney Blackmurn. Morris Evans and Ralph Bellamy in a William Castle production. Rosemary's Baby. There are two filmmakers that I appreciate their art, but I find if I say anything nice about them through social media, then I people get mad at me. One is Woody Allen and the other is Roman Polanski. And yeah, so there's there's a lot of baggage with Roman Polanski. Um, there most certainly is. Yes. I'm that baggage was there there was there was baggage post this movie coming out, but not as much in the late sixties when Rosemary's baby came out and became an enormous hit and cards on the table this is one of my favorite horror movies of all time this is the one where i there's a moment in this movie there's actually two moments in this movie there might be more for other people but two moments in this movie where i am so creeped out and so uncomfortable that i know the movie is working really well so i am an enormous fan of this film i wonder now in 2021 though if because roman polanski is listed as the writer and director if that will give a kind of tarnish the legacy of rosemary's baby but just as a straight horror movie i mean i i am not a woman i will never be pregnant so i i'm, I'm sure for women who are pregnant this would have been and especially in the late 60s this would have been even more horrifying than what i get out of it but it never fails. Every time I see this movie, I am thinking about it for days afterwards, and I just get that creeped out feeling. So if you're not familiar with this movie, a young couple played by Mia Farrow and the late great filmmaker John Cassavetes are trying for a baby, and they move into a fancy apartment, probably because they want to have a larger family. And they're surrounded by some very, very strange neighbors. And there's some, some mystery as to what has gone on in their apartment beforehand with the 89-year-old woman who uh, lived there but apparently blocked off one of the closets just before she died of natural causes in old age. And as this story unfolds, there's this great deal of suspense, there's paranoia, and you see much of the movie through Rosemary's eyes, played beautifully. I think this is my favorite Mia Farrow performance. How she wasn't up for an Oscar, I don't know. But it is, to me, it is a horror classic. And so 
that's where I start with it. I, I don't know how you feel about Rosemary's Baby or Lansky. So this is this is one of the films that I had never seen before. Oh, you hadn't ever? Oh, wow. Now, I knew all about it because this wow. is a horror staple. This is a classic. Everyone knows this. But I had always been really uncomfortable about Roman Polanski. Way before the Me Too movement, years and years before, I, I remember when I first heard about his legal troubles and his flight from justice. Mm -hmm. And I just always felt uncomfortable. So prior to watching Rosemary's Baby for to prepare for our discussion, I had never seen it before. And the only Roman Polanski film I had ever seen was Chinatown. It's a good movie. Yeah. And I, you know, I get you. I think there can be no doubt as an artist, as a filmmaker, there can be no question. The man is a master. You know, his personal life yeah. is problematic. And I think for some people, it's very difficult to kind of compartmentalize and separate those two things out. And for some people, it's easier or not as uncomfortable. So, you know, for me, my approach is always I kind of I kind of go by feel like, how do I feel about this? Like, do I feel comfortable watching it? Don't I, you know, I kind of and I kind of play it by ear and case by case. And I, I think anyone who tells me I refuse under any circumstances to watch any of their work. OK, like that's your prerogative. And if that's how you feel comfortable, I mean, that's fine. And, you know, for for someone like yourself, that it's it's a little easier to separate out the art from the artist for you to praise his work as a director. I get that, too, because, I mean, the proof is in the film. It's I mean, it's a masterpiece. So as much as I I might have disdain and disgust for who he is as a person, mm -hmm. you know, watching this, finally watching this for the first time. And I already knew, like I knew everyone that I know that loves this movie, I know they know what they're talking about. So I knew watching it finally was like, there's going to be no question. It's going to be technically proficient, masterful writing, great performance. Like I knew that. And it lived up to that in every sense. And I agree with you, Mia Farrow. She is amazing. She's amazing in this. Perfect casting. And she delivers just this beautiful performance, you know, and, and it is, it's, it's creepy. Um, some of the, the dream sequences oh. or the drugged sequences. Those are some of my favorite of the film. The choice to, during those dream sequences, to take the sound out and it's like this mm. muffle, which is like very much like actually having a dream where you think you're in a situation that makes sense. And we as an audience think this makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. Like, why is she suddenly on this ship with all these strange people yeah. talking to her? There's a captain and it's just masterful how, how that's handled and just how everything unfurls. I mean, I think Mia Farrow for the first part is kind of playing kind of the last few days of like the 1950s housewife and she's playing that kind of sweet 1950s housewife who's so like does whatever her husband played by Cassavetes and was, I'm not and I as understand it Cassavetes only acted so he could finance his movies and his style is very different from Polanski's but like in his own way he is a really uh, spoilers for the movie if you haven't seen it but really really kind of awful creepy character yeah. when like the decisions that he makes which you don't get right away I mean he just seems like any ordinary guy and they're going to have this family and they're moving into this apartment. And the dynamic of their relationship is typical for that it's time his, period. His dream, he's he's an actor. He hasn't been able, he has some commercial gigs, but he hasn't been able to sort of get the big break. He sees that chance. 
parents. And as it turns out, you know, this older couple next door who seem like they're going to be annoying and they're, they seem kind of eccentric and maybe even if you look at it a certain way, sweet until things keep going along the way. He becomes so fascinated with visiting these, these old people instead of spending time with his wife. And turns out he knows that he can further his acting career by getting in the good books with these people and also all the people that they're connected with. Ruth Gordon, this was, a, I guess, a, a big break for like the last part of her career. She's fairly famous for Harold and Maude as well, which is mm -hmm. one of the most unique love stories ever. Quite a different character than this character. But Definitely. she won an Academy Award for this role, and I get it. I mean, I think so many people, I, I was, I think it only only had a, a few nominations. I, I feel like it should have, you know, been up for several awards. There is a bit of a prejudice, I guess, against the horror genre with the Academy. But, Sad but true. But they were willing to kind of give a career type of award to Ruth Gordon for this, but I think it was a deserved award. But it's really strange to I me. Mean, Mia Farrell was nominated for Best Actress for pretty much every other award show in that that season, but not the Academy Award. So that's bizarre because she she really to me she's she's really the standout in this, and it's and as the protagonist and as the person with you know, kind of the the biggest journey story-wise, yeah. emotionally and mentally through the story. Like you needed someone who could really, who could really take us on that journey. Yeah. Starting out the kind of very subdued and, you know, housewife that kind of goes along and is just happy to support her husband and is very agreeable, sometimes to the detriment of herself. And, and just seeing her journey and how far she comes over the course of the film and, and Mia Farrow I mean she she nails it it's perfect yeah. I mean there's a bit of a, a feminist statement in there it was late 60s in, in that performance kind of showing to, to this degree but there's also a big comment on motherhood as well particularly oh, towards yeah. the end of the film which I, I don't think because a lot of people maybe because it's a bit older won't have seen it so I don't not sure I want to ruin it but the last scene of the movie just gives me chills I mean there's just yeah. something about that that last scene and you don't know exactly what she is walking into and when you see it but then that choice I mean brilliant obviously is very faithful to the book so I have to credit the writer originally wasn't just all Polanski but it, it is such a memorable creepy ending to a movie like an ending that we don't get anymore like so many horror movies are wrapped up in a neat bow and good triumphs over evil this is not one of those films and maybe that's yeah. why I think it's one of the most effective horror movies of all time no definitely but. yeah no i agree and yeah. it's it is i think there's there's a lot to unpack with this film i mean <laughs> you could do you could talk but just about this film for hours because yeah. there's just so much that's in there that's relevant to that time period especially as things were changing in society and and you had the sexual revolution was not there yet but it was coming and, yeah. and about motherhood and about you know having agency mm -hmm. and over what you do with your body and all of those things it's also really interesting too i think the religious aspects catholicism gets brought up yeah. but it's kind of you know rosemary you get the the sense that she grew up catholic and she mentions that she grew up catholic but is no longer practicing but it's 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 kind of interesting when you you know she as
as the movie unfolds, she kind of has a leg up in getting a little further along because she's she's already kind of primed <laughs> to see some of the things that are happening, maybe earlier than someone else might. So I think it, yeah, it is. It's it's a great story and it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully told. It's beautifully acted. So I'm with you. This is a great film. I'm glad I saw it. I think, and I was curious because I already knew the story. Yeah. I had just not seen the movie. I was curious if it would have the same impact with having been spoiled already and mm-hmm. already knowing. But no, it didn't. I was it was cool to watch it from start to finish. And even though I knew kind of the bigger plot points of what was going to happen, watching it unfold and the way it unfolds, yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. I mean, I've watched this movie a lot, so I know everything that's going to happen, and I still get so tense and, and creeped out by it, and it's just speaks to the power of it. A couple other things I want to mention, some nerdy facts. There is a scene where Rosemary is calling this this poor actor who has gone blind, which has allowed her husband to get this great role um, on the Broadway stage. And I guess Tony Curtis was on the other end of the phone doing that scene. Oh my gosh. Polanski didn't tell, and and so Mia was, Pharaoh was trying to figure out because she sort of recognized the voice and yeah. so a lot of her hesitation, that's all natural. Like that was a, all set up by Polanski in that way. The voice uh, is recognizable. Yes, yeah. You're like, wait, I think I know that voice. That's awesome. Then as like, I'm a fan, like because I watched this a little bit later on, but I'd watched some comedy movies through the 80s and the early 90s. And so you see a young Charles Grodin, we just lost him recently, playing the one doctor who Rosemary should have stayed with. Dr. Uh, Hill. uh, As a fan of the movie Trading Places, we also see Ralph Bellamy, who is this prominent, very established doctor who the couple next door arrange to care for Rosemary back before we kind of know what they're about. And yeah, and it just, it was kind of these faces the first time I saw it. Oh, it's that guy from that movie and that movie. So there are a lot of really kind of interesting people in there, but in roles that were very, very different than what they would normally have taken on, certainly later in their career. So, I mean, the dad from Beethoven is in there and uh, that gives it a little bit of a a strange feeling too. One more thing I want to shout out. I think it's one of my favorite horror movie scores of all time. Mm. Lullaby. And I guess Mia Farrell herself is, is the voice in there kind of singing the lullaby piece. It's haunting. Like it sounds really, nice but then in another context it's it's really creepy it's up there very sinister about a perfect effect so i i I really don't have a lot i there's one sequence in there that i think is a a notch over directed and is a little bit dated Mm. rosemary is trying to escape within the apartment from the doctor and her husband and there's this kind of jazzy music that comes on oh see i love the jazzy music i can't help it i thought I don't know, for some reason it takes me out of the movie for a split second, not long, because mm. it gets into her apartment, and oh my gosh, like, scarier than anything I can think of, like, she thinks she's safe, but then we, just in the background, we see some people walking past, oh, like, oh, this, yeah. is awful. this is awful, but... <laughs> Anyway, uh, no, I, I know exactly the part you're talking about. She's in the yeah. elevator and there's this like dissonant jazz that yeah. kind of comes in. And I, I mean, I just like jazz. So 
And that's, <laughs> by the way, that that's me stretching out. Like I, I challenged myself, like my favorite movie of all time, top favorites of all time, to come up with something negative to say if it's going right, to be a, right. same thing with something I, mean, I don't like. I like to try to find some positive. Though. I'll I'll say this: mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of John Cassavetes as an actor. That's you know, I mean, I I know he's one of the great directors, and I can't argue with that. But mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of him as an actor. He just doesn't. I don't know. And I haven't seen him in in very many things. But mm -hmm. the things I have seen. I'm always kind of like, oh, I don't know about this performance. And but in this, it works perfectly because I'm not supposed to like him. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that yeah, that it's okay that that I I kind of want to grab him and shake him. And I think maybe in this film he was controlled a little bit more. As Pulaski would plan things out and be very perfectionistic and strategic about everything, and that shows up in every frame of the film and other films that he has done. They haven't all been great. Cassavetes loved improvisation and you see that in his films as a writer director he lets scenes go on for a long time and he gives mm -hmm. the actors as much rope as they want and that works sometimes and sometimes it's a little bit a little bit over the top and a little bit shaky but i think this is probably his maybe his most memorable as an actor performance i mean yeah the movie is a classic it's the kind of house they don't build anymore a relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry, when there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while, and at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. James Brolin, Margot Kidder, Rod Steiger, in the Amityville Horror. God's peace in this house. after the Lutz family moved into their dream house. They were running for their lives. What happened to them is an experience in terror you will never forget. And you will believe in the Amityville horror. From the best-selling book that made millions believe in the unbelievable, the Amityville horror. Here's a confession, you know, 1979, the Amityville Horror, the original came out and I bought this in some going out of business 
sale. I don't know if it was Blockbuster or you know one of those one of those places. And I before this podcast, I had been sitting on my shelf. I had never watched this. This was my first pass. And so kind of like Rosemary's Baby for you, this is considered a horror classic with a bunch this of This is sequels. the other one. This is and, the other one I had never seen. Good. So we'll be on equal footing on this one. I don't have this great love of it or this history like a, you know I have with Rosemary's Baby or kind of the, you know, the early negative history with Constantine. There's uh, some newlyweds and their three kids move into a large house on Long Island where there had been a mass murder. This is a real crime that is recorded in history and this is the Lutz family we're a real family what we might get to talking about is whether this these events actually happen or not but they start to experience very strange inexplicable manifestations in the house and start to in many ways believe that the house is possessed this is also a kind of a connection piece I think to the Conjuring films which I, I haven't watched the latest one yet but I, I enjoyed the first two but you know from what I have looked at it, it does sound like the writer of the, the book that is you know, meant to be like a true haunting type of a story. Anson. And the Lutz family, it sounds like they fabricated the whole thing, that none of these things happened, but they just decided because when they learned of the history of the house, it would be kind of interesting. Like some of the accounts say there was over a bottle of wine or something. They decided to make up this story about how they had to escape this demonic house. And then that was taken over and made into this film, which I, I guess I like, but I think because it's been built up in my mind so much, it wasn't as effective as I thought it would be. Stuart Rosenberg directed it, and I think it works if you're looking for kind of a demonic haunted house film. It was perhaps a little bit of a pioneer for later ones that we would get in you know the 80s and onwards. It was coming out off of a very like to me the best decade for horror was the 70s because you could get away with a little bit more and we had the as you some of the ones you mentioned the exorcist the omen films like that in comparison to those and a couple others that i really like i don't think it's quite as effective but it has a couple of creepy moments and on the whole i i like the cast james brolin plays george lutz margaret kidder and another um canadian uh who is mostly known for lois lane and uh, the christmas Christopher Reeves Superman, may he rest in peace. He apparently was, was a candidate to play uh, George Lutz. That would have been kind of interesting, a, a different oh, type of thing. Yeah. So I, I like the actors. I, some of them got really lambasted over this film when I looked at the, the history of when it came mm. out. James Brolin said he, he had trouble getting work for two or three years after this because the movie was so dark and his character had some some kind of violent, dark moments. But yeah, I, I feel like I'm kind of talking around how in between I am. And I <laughs> I think maybe I'm disappointed because I thought it was going to be like Rosemary's Baby or something, something that would really, really creep me out. I kept waiting for that to happen. And I even watched this, like I watched most of it kind of in the middle of the night, again, on, on my iPad, <laughs> not to wake people up uh, where, where I was watching it. So it was the perfect setting for me to be creeped out by a horror movie and it just never came. So that's kind of where I where I sit with this one. How was your first pass at the Amityville Horror? So this is another one that I went into it. Like I already know the major plot points. This this movie had been spoiled for me. Like I already kind of know the backstory. I had just never seen it for whatever reason. There wasn't really a reason why. I honestly don't know yeah. why I had never watched it. I just never had. 
Um, so going into this, I was, you know, I kind of knew what to expect story wise, but once the thing gets going, I found that there was like, there were certain sequences or, or little touches here and there that I was like, Oh, that's really cool. I, I like when this film was subtle, yes. something rustling, some of the, the little things that, that kind of start to build this tension of the presence of something evil in this house. That was when this really kind of shined for me. The, the moments when the Catholic priest or the nun, like the clergy, like have, you know, a really intense reaction to being there. Things like that really work for me. I found that those were like, oh, cool, nice. So we're, we're building something. I'm going to say this right now. I think I would feel a lot different about this movie if it was 20 to 30 minutes shorter. And it's like two hours long. And I, I think yeah. I was I was getting into it in the beginning and I was back in towards the end. But there's there's a part in the middle where it kind of sags for me and I kind of started to lose engagement with it a little bit. But I I think there's some great performances here. I think James Brolin is awesome. That Margot Kidder totally works in her role. You know, my favorite character is Carolyn, the new age friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's my favorite. I just love her. Oh, Chaper played her. And she, yeah, she was in lots of stuff in kind of the 80s. Yeah. And 90s, yeah. No, and I, it's a great character. I, I like, too, one of the things about this movie that I thought was really cool that, you know, it's not a completely original thing because you got some of this in The Exorcist, but mm -hmm. they, they really make a point of it here. So the, the Catholic Church, it's very topical because it talks about Vatican II, yeah. the Second Vatican Council, where the church was starting to make changes to some of its practices, trying to modernize and update, which <laughs> I know to non-Catholics probably sounds like so ridiculous because there's nothing modern about the Catholic Church, but... <laughs> When you have an institution that's a couple thousand years old, yes. you know, they they move very slowly. But I, I, I like that that was referenced here to kind of give you the push and pull between, you know, maybe the bishop who doesn't want, who doesn't believe that there's a demonic or evil presence in the house and the other priest who's witnessed it and is like, no, seriously, <laughs> there's something evil going mm -hmm. on here. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that juxtaposition. I thought that was kind of cool. And I thought it was very, very of that time late 70s where things are starting to shift people are are more looking to science and rational explanations for things and so to then be faced with a supernatural event yeah. there's like this dissonance where people don't know what to do with that because it flies in the face of the direction things are moving so i thought they that didn't was even cool. want to acknowledge the devil at that time i think with the catholic church right yeah it was it's kind of interesting like that time period kind of when you kind of read up on the history it's interesting it's like you know prior to Vatican II, which took place between 1962 and 1965, like mass was held in Latin. And there was just a lot of very like all of these very traditional kind of staunch <laughs> practices, you know, and after Vatican II, I, the, the biggest change that, that comes to mind is that you started having mass was actually said in local languages, but lots of shifts, you know, and, and the church taking more of an interest in, in science and scientific research and things like that. So it's an interesting Otherwise, time. Otherwise, you lose people. You would have lost generations. Right, right. Lost three generations would have... That's a, oh, you know, sure. you a big discussion about how that has, <laughs> has gone over the last, you know, 
40 plus years since this movie came out. But yeah, there's a lot that's happened since then. But it is kind of interesting. I think this movie is interesting as a time capsule, like the house and the costuming, like the fashions and also the dynamic of this family where, you know, this is a presumably divorced woman or a woman who had a previous partner with whom she had three children and has now married a man who's coming in to be a part of this family. And they kind of touch a little on those dynamics. And that was a relatively new thing. It wasn't as common back then, but it was becoming more common to have divorce and single mothers and then remarriage and then how that changes the family landscape. So I thought that was kind of cool that they introduced that because it makes sense for the time. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure because I, I, again, I, I haven't looked up their story enough. If if she was a widow, a young widow, or or if she had divorced, because I know in reality, the Lutz is divorced some years later and they've both died. Right. Yeah, I, I think a couple things I wanted to touch on definitely people need to know with 1970s I, and I, I don't know maybe I like slower movies or whatever but 1970s horror is not like you know 2021 horror where boom 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 we can't lose our audience and you know anything beyond 90 minutes seems like it's unnecessary uh, again my friend Larry with uh, Rank and Review likes to talk about how in a 1970s movie you'll see the car pull up you'll see them open the door both people will get out they'll shut the door or the lock door oh, and then yeah. they'll walk into the building as opposed to car pulls up cut to they're in the building Absolutely. yeah and, and so i think that is a factor here uh with this this movie i i didn't and maybe i had to watch kind of in a little bit in part so maybe in one start to finish sitting i might have felt the pace a little bit more i wasn't as much uh, i watched kind of the second and third acts as one one thing but uh, mm -hmm. i wasn't feeling it being overly slow sometimes i even when it's a movie i like i will acknowledge if it's a slow paced film so but that does make sense to me can you explain because you you said you like the scenes you know rod, rod steiger very good actor he won an oscar uh, or in the heat of the night and he carried on you know he he would leave everything on the screen he was a, a big he made big choices as an actor you know yeah not Nicolas Cage big but you know it'd be kind of based in Mother Earth but then he would start kind of shouting lines and he would kind of build up to that uh, maybe Pacino might be a better comparison mm, there. I could yeah. see that he you know he he plays the fa father Delaney who was gonna come over to the house to kind of bless it but he he can't get the attention of the Lutzes because they're outside and on a boat or something on this this beautiful property the sequence with the insects and all of that I, I had a lot of trouble with that I and it just kind of mm. we sat there and then he's so stoic and then he's really heated in that conversation where the and screaming at, at the bishop that, that there's something evil about the house and nobody's believing him which is a convention in, in these movies sure um, but that standalone scene with the insects I just didn't get it. it it was it was there it was like he was in a completely separate movie to me like I got the like the the nun the the aunt who was a nun who came in and felt the evil presence right away and then made an excuse and left that made some sense to me but the scene he he walks into this mansion you know without letting anybody know and he starts walking around and he ends up in this room and and then he has all of these flies all over him and he's you know traumatized and then he runs out and leaves 
and then we have a couple other scenes with him and then he ends up in some sort of a place that they would put priests who have had a mental breakdown or, or a nervous breakdown or something right. so yeah it, it's just it feels like a completely different movie and they got a, an A-list actor in that role and so I had trouble connecting that uh, no I hear you I think I think the stuff with him yeah I would have liked to have seen it handled a little better in terms of like kind of making things make sense he so in that initial scene when he comes to the house they they don't tell us ahead of him getting there we found out after that she had made arrangements for him to come and bless the house yeah. so that's why he's there so i guess when when no one answers him and he doesn't find anyone in the house I, I assume he was just going to bless the house and then go. And and when they do a house blessing like that, they go room to room. So I think, so that, like, I'm with them on that part. The insects, like, I kind of, I kind of get the whole, like, devil's minions, mm-hmm. swarm of insects. Like, okay. Yeah. But it is a little, it could have been executed a little better, that part of it. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, with his character, it's like, the phone doesn't work anytime he calls. But, like, he he doesn't like he could have tried to call the guy at work like the husband at work or he could have there are other ways <laughs> yeah there's other ways like so mm-hmm. that's kind of weird it's also kind of weird that you know later on in the film kathy the margot kidder character says that you know this priest is like a friend of hers she only called the one time when he didn't show up like i would think like someone doesn't show like like you would go to the parish and be like hey is everything okay yeah, what happened yeah Right. Like, I feel like it kind of goes out of its way to keep them from connecting yeah. so that he can warn her. Like, this is a, these are screenplay problems. I mean, I, I'm, I right. don't think I'm criticizing the performances, but just, yeah, making some of those connections because I got why he was there, but it's such a big, extraordinary scene early in the movie, but it just sits there. It doesn't lead yeah. in. And he's supposed to be kind of like the, the Max von Sydow character from The Exorcist, like right. the equivalent of, of that kind of thing. And it just doesn't have that impact that it should. It almost feels like a waste of a, a really talented actor. Maybe a, a guy. I agree. I agree. It's it's messy. That part of the story is messy. And his performance is great. And I think the idea behind it, you know, that any spiritual person that walks into this house is is affected by the evil that's there. I, I like that that idea. And I agree with you. It's executed better with, with the aunt that's a nun. And we also see it with Carolyn, the new age friend, that she's, she's affected as well someone who's kind of tuned in to the vibes and she's affected so I like that that is consistent throughout but I yeah I agree with you where Father Delaney is concerned it's a little messy story-wise that's it I wouldn't dissuade people particularly horror fans from seeing this but I I'm having trouble getting excited about it it isn't like uh, you have to see this right now because I managed to go 40 some years without seeing this movie and I was left kind of it's fine yeah. I'm not quite sure what the legacy is other than the fact that it's a really kind of strange, true, or true, not true crime, but true haunting type of thing, which is that story right. is carried on for decades and decades afterwards. And a lot of mystery about what happened or didn't happen in that house. And that, that leaves us feeling a little bit creeped out. So I can appreciate all that, but it wasn't just, it wasn't as exciting to me as I thought it was going to be. So kind of in between there. I concur. Yeah. I feel the same. And I, I wonder if I would feel differently about it if I had seen this as a kid, if mm. there would be a nostalgia factor that would bump it up a little bit. But as it stands, yeah, it's a, 
it's fine. And like, if it were on TV or someone put it on, I'm happy to watch it again. But yeah, Yeah. it's not one that I'm like putting on any of my top lists. It's not one that I'm shouting from the rooftops. You have to see this movie. But I think horror fans should check it out at some point if they haven't. I'm just surprised I didn't get to it. But it's a similar sort of thing. It wasn't like I was avoiding it. It just just didn't happen. So yeah. yeah, so I think we're in kind of similar places here. I'm glad to have like that perspective that you're putting on as far as like the, the Catholic history and how that plays out in the film because that's that gives it a different layer that maybe I, I didn't get the first time I watched it. I think, you know, to your point too, because of the way that the delay the father Delaney character is handled, like those scenes where they kind of talk about that topical, like real world church stuff, it's easy to get it lost because that part of the story, because his storyline feels kind of tacked on it's easy to like that layer is almost a little separated (laughs) from the rest of rest of it and if you're looking at cutting parts of the film because it drags a bit maybe that's something that would be cut you kind of generally keep the church in there uh you wouldn't want to cut the new age friend i don't i think no i love her i would probably cut down the sex scene uh oh yes yeah yeah i (laughs) i'm not a prude i have no problem with sex scenes in movies but something Something about the buildup to that scene and then the scene itself, I was like, okay, is there a reason? And the only reason I I guess is because it's a horror movie from the 70s. So they thought there's got to be some sex in here, maybe. And then later, yeah. after he's starting, after Josh Brolin's character, George, is starting to be affected by the house, then he we get a scene where he was unable to perform. Yes, so then I thought, right. well, maybe, maybe that's why the sex scene is in there to show that, I don't know, it's a stretch. That's how the house is affecting him in study used to be I guess uh, one other thing I want to say and you reminded me of it there as far as Josh Brolin's character and he's starting to go more and more mad and there's some danger in there from the father this this was a year before the shining the film version of the shining came out and there were some moments in there where I was thinking if I didn't know the chronology of it that mm. they borrowed a lot from the shining but in fact you know the shining was probably being filmed the same time as this movie was released there's some interesting so the fact that they were there ahead like a kind of a year yeah that is interesting uh my old thumbs up i'll call it for uh the amityville horror agreed every child is afraid of the dark the unknown the nightmare in gatlin nebraska that nightmare is in the corn stephen king's children of the corn Stephen King, the author of Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine, an adult nightmare. Children of the Corps. Stephen King's Children of the Corps, an adult nightmare. Coming soon from New World Pictures. 
Okay, so the first time I was ever on a podcast as a guest, I, I did a Stephen King episode, and I mentioned I'm a Stephen King fan. I've read, probably haven't read, no, I know for a fact I haven't read all of his, most of his work. And it, yeah, it, to me it is still a little bit of a mystery how a, a very, very short, truly short story in the Night Shift collection called Children of the Corn has led to a franchise worth of films. And I don't claim to have seen seen any of the sequels but I, a couple times now i have taken a look at uh children of the corn which is essentially about a, a young couple they get trapped in a, a remote town after when they think they have hit and killed a child coming out of a cornfield and they find they can't get out of the town and it appears that this entire town is populated by these violent children this is not a great movie this is not a great adaptation of the short story but but for some reason, I make excuses for Children of the Corn. I liked it less than the first time I reviewed it for a podcast, so reviewing it now for my, my own podcast. I The stuff I kind of liked when I initially viewed this, I'm not as crazy about. But still, somewhere in my heart of hearts, I have some sort of bizarre soft spot for Children of the Corn that I don't have for, say, Constantine, where technically... Constantine is way, way better and a much better cast and, and, and all of those things. I do have to say it's nice to see Linda Hamilton appearing in this movie in a role which is completely different than Sarah Connor from her, her Terminator films. And Peter Horton plays, she plays uh, Vicky and Peter Horton plays Bert. And there's this young couple and he's uh, a doctor and they're doing a road trip to where he's, I think he has a job in, you know, Boston or something like that. And they're, they're driving along. Before they get into the action, there's this scene in this hotel room where Linda Hamilton starts kind of singing and they have this kind of flirtatious thing. The first time I saw it, I just was so charmed by that scene and I still am sort of charmed by it, even though it it's it's kind of kind of cheesy, kind of hokey too. But I maybe appreciate that a little bit more. Essentially, in the Stephen King short story, this couple just starts off on the road and they are fighting and they are just miserable and they're you know they're bickering at each other and then they think they hit this kid and then everything kind of goes wrong in a very fast time frame and it would probably be the equivalent of it's twenty minutes would be stretching the film out. But here we have so many different elements that are thrown in to make this an hour and a half long movie and I, ironically at the end but you probably didn't know what the future of this would be it said the, <laughs> the end in this spoilers happier ending than Stephen King's short story mm. has for this couple so I think the biggest problem perhaps and maybe you'll agree maybe you won't is how much this movie relies on child actors to be yeah. successful we kind of have three adults who show up uh, there's a, a guy in a gas station who has a, kind of a good scene for a little bit but it's mostly about this couple and then all of these children I guess some of them were quite a bit older than their characters were in, in the movie but those actors the child actors are not very good it, I just have to say it as it is sometimes you want to kind of be a little bit 
I have a professional actor friend I had on the show, lives in LA, but he grew up in uh, a city here in, in Western Canada where I live. And we were reviewing and I was I was talking about a, a, a child performance I didn't like. And I said, well, you know, we, you know, but we can excuse that a little bit. He said, why not? Why, or why do we have to excuse them? These were people who were paid to be actors in the movie and they should be doing a professional job. And so I had that more in my mind this time watching mm. it. That that's, I think, the big problem with it and just some things are really kind of hokey but I don't know there's something I, I mentioned I like remote horror and this is remote horror and so I, I almost want to cheer for it but I, I, I don't know anyway so I'm talking too much already but I'll pass <laughs> over to you your impressions of Children of the Corn had you seen it before? Oh yeah yeah I grew up with this one and yeah. I too have a big soft spot for this movie intellectually I know that not all of the performances in this film are up to snuff I know that yeah some of the set pieces are really hokey looking it's <laughs> there's a lot you could pick apart about this movie it would be very easy to do but in my heart of hearts I can't help it. I just, this is a movie that I watch maybe every five, six years. And it's one that as a kid really creeped me out. I have this thing about cornfields. It's the not being able to see. And and so there's something already inherently creepy about this movie because of the setting, because it's, you know, this, this town that's surrounded by these cornfields. And the whole cult mm -hmm. thing, I love cults. I love cults. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of storytelling it's like it's just so ripe for horror and for drama yeah. and for you know so those elements alone are the things that keep me coming back to this even though i agree with you yeah that some of those i mean some of those young actors not not great yeah. and i you know i also agree with you about linda hamilton and and peter horton like those initial scenes you kind of fall in love with them and it gets you invested which is helpful because <laughs> You know, because I could easily see if 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 those if those two characters were not as charming, if we weren't endeared to them, it would not be long before I'd be like, I really don't care if these yeah. people get murdered or not. What, what are these kids to, to crucify <laughs> them or or whatever. <laughs> Right, but because because of the actors and and their and their performance early on, they they get me on board. Like when they're in the car too, before it hits the fan. People who grew up in seventies, eighties, a bit into the nineties, like younger people, don't get this now. These big maps and people trying to figure out where they are yeah. and places, and it led to fights among couples for generations. But yeah, there there, there is something to those scenes. Just, yeah, they're charming. Yeah, they're they are. Charming. Yeah. I'm glad you you feel that way because I, I it would be easy to just rip this this movie apart. The other thing that I really get behind again, it wasn't as much of an impact as the first time I I saw this. The opening scene is brilliant. Like you see any of these towns, these small towns where they have the church, and right after they go to church, then they go to the local diner and and have lunch, and then this premeditated attack by these children and how that's enacted. It, it's it was awesome. A great way to open the film and to, to set us up I think that that kind of won me over early and that's where I had a, a good feeling about this that where I was excusing all of the bumps and grinds along the way there's sequences that just don't make a ton of sense I mean it's true they go to great trouble to finally capture Linda Hamilton in this house then they capture her then they go to the the trouble of 
putting her up on a cross. But then when there's this conflict between the two leaders, then they bring her down to go to the trouble, which I'm sure would be even worse, bring her down from the cross. And then they have her in this scene where it's set up where she can be rescued by uh, by her husband. And, it's, and it's, it's very, worse. it's a very Bond villain moment. Yes. How easily they got yeah. distracted from... <laughs> analogy. Yeah, that's perfect because yeah, in the Bond films, they would always have that, you know, this moment of danger. And I kind of wish, though, you know, I, I still, I'm not sure how much I want to spoil because, and if you've mm. read the short story, you know, that's very much. It's this is a completely different thing. If you're if you're looking for something that's faithful adaptation, it's not really at all. I mean, and it, it, there's no way it could have been. There's a bit of a scare. It maybe is a bit of a hokey jump scare at the end, but that works for me. But I just kind of wish they had the guts to have the unhappy ending from the short story. I, I don't want to say much more about it, but right. No, I hear you. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It is kind of a weird choice. And and why they made that choice, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure, but by, it doesn't doesn't ruin my en- enjoyment of the film. But yeah, I think it would have been better. I, I guess King did an ori- a script for it originally, mm. but and you know, King pen scripts are not as good as his novels, just because of his dialogue doesn't translate well to film sometimes. Sure. And I guess they were looking at this and they just didn't think he knew how to write a screenplay at this time, kind of mid mid eighties, and so they they brought somebody else. In to fix it because apparently it was just a long, long section of the couple just bickering with each other and they're not very likable and like all the stuff they right. were kind of implementing this film on. But he he went for the much darker, nastier version of the story. I don't know what he did to kind of create a second and third act for for the movie, but I would have been interested to see what his version was like, even if it had yeah. really dialogue and unlikable characters. Because I think this is kind of missing a bit of an edge in some places. The edge of that opening scene is never completely there there's the they, they flirt with it be going quite dark but it never quite gets there you know now that you say that the isaac and malachi characters are some of the most memorable of you know from 80s horror films you know aside from like obviously like the the really big ones and that isaac character such a little creep and <laughs> and i think i always forget that he doesn't really have that much screen time no. like there's there's like there's some significant portions of this film that he's that he's off off camera so yeah and i think if they had maybe done more with him it would have been darker because it's a him and the malachi character like malachi has a lot more screen time because he's running now there's a yeah. little friday the 13th teleporting happening with malachi he's in one place and then he's at the field having some ceremony or he's you know getting into different conflict but then he's in a different part of the town and i don't know how that's all happening i'm not supposed to think that hard about it i don't think <laughs> Yeah, he looks really, really scary until he speaks. Yes, um, he should never have said a word. And I kind of think Isaac too. Like, I, I'm always taking out, you know, it's maybe. Well, I guess he was in his 20s when he gave that performance. He looks so young and not in his 20s. So I can yeah. be a little harder. I'm, I just find that voice that Isaac has so grating. And, mm. and especially when he starts screaming and he goes kind of very shrill. Uh, yeah, he gets that higher register pitch. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I just I don't know if his his tactic was oh I'm going to play him that his he's just going through puberty or something and he's well oh, it's just changing or something like that but I don't know I I all those scenes I'm like can we get back to the couple there and mm. even the cute little children because I appreciated what they were doing I mean they weren't amazing actors either that kid Job was the in my mind the hero of this movie yes they don't no. get out of there alive without Job no they don't that's true that's absolutely <laughs> true. But I think having, well, I guess it gave some layers to this community that not every kid went completely along with this plan to just kill off all adults. I mean, but there's something to me inherently scarier about the King premise where there's just this town that children rule and they just, all of them just go and kill any adult that's that's there. You know, it's a scary world. If you have the misfortune of ending up in this town and you're over the age of whatever, 19, then you're going to be attacked by this army of children. So so I, it doesn't scare me really. And I don't have the nostalgia even for it, but I feel like I have nostalgia for it just because I, I'm willing to excuse so many different things here. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad that you enjoy it and you have kind of a similar type of thing because I've heard more negative about Children of the Corn. Now, there's apparently, I, again, I, I have you watched the sequels? I hear no, the sequels are br- the brutal. They're brutal. I, I might someday. <laughs> If I'm in the mood, try it. But for now, I'm I'm just happy to go. enjoy my little children of the corn. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, maybe one of these days I'll get curious. But today yeah. is not that day. That is not. No, no. There's too many other movies to see. <laughs> in 1974, a motion picture shocked the world. It has become one of the most acclaimed and successful films in history. The Exorcist is a classic in its own time. And now, Warner Brothers takes you a step beyond. Exorcist II, The Heretic. Starring Linda Blair, Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max von Sydow, James Earl Jones. Their minds locked together with the most terrifying vision of all. Exorcist 2. The Heretic. I'm happy to hear that both of our favorite horror movie of all time is The Exorcist. I mean, it, it just creeps me out. It works every time. I know younger generations who don't find it, they find it hokey. It really bothers me, you know, even more than Rosemary's Baby. So I feel like I should be really, really mad at The Exorcist 2 Heretic. It's a movie that, I, as I understand it, when they pulled only Plan 9 from Outer Space, the Ed Wood movie, which I have reviewed on this program favorably. <laughs> um, that was... It was considered the second worst movie of all time. Everything I have read about it sounds like it was just a horrific production, a mess from start to finish. Well, you're watching The Exorcist 2, you see what a mess it is. Yet, for some reason, I still kind of like it. And I looked up who likes this movie. It's a it's a very small community of folks. <laughs> It's, it's, it is a community that I want to be part of, though. Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, and the late film critic Pauline Kael mm. all like The Exorcist II Heretic, but 
I don't think people who made the film like this movie. So it's an uphill battle to defend it. But for some strange reason, I, I still, it's it's not The Exorcist. It'll never be The Exorcist. Oh, no. And it is, it is a completely different thing. And, and there are puzzling scenes that, I mean, I could try to take a guess as to what they're about. And I, I actually thought some things were kind of making a little bit more sense this time watching it. But I, I can't say, I'd be lying if I could say that I understand everything that John Borman was doing with this much in anticipated sequel. It, ma it made a ton of money. I guess it was yeah. the only sequel that made money, but probably everybody wanted to see the sequel to The Exorcist because it was the, the greatest horror movie of the 1970s. So, but John Borman, you know, you look at his, his resume and uh, Deliverance being his most prominent film, very, very strong director. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this, this was a big black mark on his career and still is. Very few people have anything nice to say about it, but to do a little bit, I suppose, a bit of a, a plot on this one. So Regan comes back. She's a teenager now, and so she was once possessed by a demon and finds that it still lurks within her. Meanwhile, a, a priest played by uh, the great Richard Burden investigates the death of the girl's exorcist, uh, played by Max, Max von Sydow, who returns for some kind of flashback scenes, mm -hmm. which don't really work all that well, nor does some of the supposed flashbacks to what happened in the house. But I don't know. I like this cast. I don't know if any of them appreciated being in this. Helen Burstyn early on said she was not going to be part of it. And I guess in an earlier version of this, uh, they were just going to keep going with her character, but had would, had Louise Fletcher, mm -hmm. the great actor from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who I'm an enormous fan of. She's always had such a, a presence in films, yeah. including this one. But when they scrapped the idea that her mother, who disappears without explanation from the story completely... She, they changed the role so Louise Fletcher would play this this psychiatrist uh, who was doing these experiments who was originally written as a male character. So they changed it to a female character. James Earl Jones has a very interesting role here. And we think it's one thing. It does become another thing later on. So uh, Ned Beatty actually has a little bit of a cameo in here mm -hmm. as like this pilot. Uh, there were like some elite actors from the 1970s that ended up in, in this film. Linda Blair herself said initially she wasn't going to do the sequel but there was this really good script that they got together and then after she agreed they kept doing rewrites and rewrites mm. and rewrites to the point where she couldn't explain what this movie was about. But here I stand. I, I have a good time when I watch The Exorcist 2. Do I need help? Am I like handing in my movie critics <laughs> license by, by, <laughs> by saying that this is uh, a, a temperate but positive review of The Exorcist 2? I'm a David Lynch fan. I like things that are out there. I, I don't know why I would defend this movie but there's other movies that I would be so much harder on that maybe pulled the same notes that The Exorcist 2 did. So, well, what are your thoughts on it? If liking this movie means we got to turn in a card somewhere, then toss mine in there too, because okay. I really like this movie. Good, good, good. All right. I was nervous about this one. And I come from, I come from a family of people who enjoy this movie. Good. I did not realize that this movie was hated until the internet came along. 
prior to having internet access, I just took for granted that like, yeah, like I enjoy this movie and like, why wouldn't people enjoy it? Mm-hmm. And it had never occurred to me that it was so hated. And <laughs> I'll start up by saying this. No, it is not in the same league as The Exorcist. Yeah. And nothing could ever be. So let's just get that out of the way right away. I really enjoy this movie. I like John Borman. I like his style. And his style is present here. The score. Yes. And Neil Morricone does the score. Yeah. Come on. And Neil Morricone, the point, Tarantino, I think, used a little bit of music from that in The Hateful Eight. Or him and Morricone used a bit of that. And yeah, it's it's to me, it's not as memorable as the score to The Exorcist. But Of course not. It, but, but it's, it's not good. going to be. It's really it's good. good. Like that sequence where they are traveling back to Georgetown, to the original house. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're kind of cross-cutting between Louise Fletcher trying to figure out what to do and that woman who'd been kind of the assistant to Ellen Burstyn in the first film. That was a that was a little bit of an off character to me. She kind of served from scene to scene. She was kind of different things, but there was some something really impactful about that sequence as we were approaching the climax, a very big climax to this film, but yeah. climax nonetheless, that, that music did such a great service to that sequence. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I, I really enjoy about this film, again, because of the time period, because of when it's set in that late seventies is, you know, as, as the society is shifting to more secular pursuits and looking to science to answer the big questions. I and this film makes reference to Vatican II as well. Yes. Again, the late 70s, like there's a big impact and I like I'll also pause to say Richard Burton is awesome in this. I think he brings yeah. this really grim energy that is just is delicious. And then this priest who is so kind of disenchanted and and not in the same way as Father Karras from the first film in a different yeah. way. But he, you know, he's bringing this kind of grim disenchanted energy and and he's being asked to investigate the death and and he and he gets brought into this whole scientific experiment and that is like a whole other realm to him and and yes some of the science in this movie doesn't make a lot of sense but the scenes where they're using this science that they've concocted are really cool i think the visually it looks really cool i the sound design like i'm sorry this movie is fun I just think it's fun. I don't where, where they have that, and apparently there was this got laughs in the movie theater. But I, I, I found it creepy when uh, they have that machine and they're you know that hypnosis and together the they're both going the into into Regan's memories. I, I thought that worked really well, and the expressions on the characters' faces. Richard Burton subtly he never named the film, but kind of bashed it afterwards. And apparently, you know, according to Linda Blair, I mean, he was sober at the start of the shooting, but the last two thirds he was. But <laughs> even when he's phoning it in, he is so such a great actor. I mean, with this cast, how could it be bad? Like it's probably was reaching for more than it could handle. And the rewrite, I think they had too many elements going. But Constantine, which we talked about earlier, has that problem too. And so maybe like these are fun movies that maybe needed a bit more focus. Maybe, I don't know, who could have fixed the screenplay? I know that they wanted to bring back some characters. I think Lee J. Cobb had died. They wanted to bring back that that police character from the first movie. Ellen Burstyn wouldn't do the next film. Uh, I'm not sure why Jason Miller, like, because I, I was so happy to see him in the third film. 
film and he's actually to me the unsung hero of the exorcist but i yeah i uh i think they're just kept trying to adapt and i don't think people necessarily got the whole sequence with the the locusts and flying through africa maybe it's a problematic depiction of of africa and james earl jones in that the outfits and he's supposed to be a child who had survived an exorcism but when we find out what's actually going on it it kind of undoes anything that looks mildly racist uh, in 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 some of those sequences like i think some people keep their arms crossed when they're watching those dream sequences or and i get it i think my first few times seeing this when i was younger i was really drawn to the location i loved that the story was going global because like People don't just get possessed in in the United States of America. Like, (laughs) you know, these cosmic forces are present anywhere and everywhere. And so I like that the story expands also because, you know, in The Exorcist, we have, you know, that opening scene in the Middle East with the statue of Pazuzu. And so it was kind of cool for them to try to, to tie to that and show kind of the global, the international scale of this fight for the souls of humanity. Yes, the representations, not great. And at that time, I think in the 70s, people in general, the mainstream was less concerned with that yeah. than they are today. We've 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 come we've come we've come a ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're deep into the years of the black exploitation films and mm-hmm. a lot of the civil rights movement. So but yeah, I mean, like throughout the eighties there were very insensitive portrayals of yeah pretty much every race i i guess watching it you wouldn't think about it well some people i'm sure who were hurt by it would oh absolutely you know, yeah in the late 70s but watching it now yeah i guess that, that's that piece about projecting stuff onto the time yeah, it, watching it today it sticks out like a <clears throat> sore thumb badly I, I would say so i i have trouble defending those scenes i like i, I like the arc of Regan, I mean, I'm a big fan of Linda Blair's performance in the first film, and I was happy to sort of be able to cling on to somebody that I really liked from uh, the first film here, so it wasn't a completely divorced sequel, but... Yeah, Linda Blair, you know what struck me when I was watching it this time around, was like, really, she gets to to give a performance for most of the film. You know, there's the whole controversy of possessed Regan in The Exorcist was voiced by another actor and and McCambridge McCambridge yeah and you know and so I I like that Reagan gets to come back in this film and Linda Blair gets to act the whole thing and and show that she can do that and it is unfortunate that this film is so maligned because you know because she she finally got her chance to be like to just give the whole performance but I I think she did good she's also kind of in that awkward age too where she you know she still had very much like a baby face just because Linda Mm -hmm. Blair has a very round face I relate because I'm a round face person myself you know but she was growing up you know she's a a young woman at that point and and so there's kind of like she kind of has this girlish element but she is kind of a young adult so it's kind of like a weird spot to be in but I I think she did well I think she did well with the material she was Mm -hmm. given James Earl Jones the really questionable characterization aside it doesn't matter what you give james earl jones he gives an excellent performance his presence is awesome even if what they gave him to do was 
kind of problematic. But I think I, I'm not even sure how I could spoil this because it's so confusing to explain. But <laughs> yeah. When Richard Burden has gone through this strange journey to find him and he thinks he's seen this very stereotypical tribal kind of elder tribal, yeah and then demonic priest what's really going on there i think that almost saves it and maybe that's the only way that james earl jones at this point he had been nominated for an academy award himself oh for, yeah for hope i mean i think he he could probably say no i I'm guessing a lot of people wanted to be part of an Exorcist sequel because it was going to be a big deal, oh, yeah. but they were probably ultimately disappointed in what uh, what happened there. But <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. And I, I just think Louise Fletcher is interesting. Richard Burden's interesting. Linda Blair was giving her all at that time. Max von Sydow does a good job in those. He doesn't, you can tell he's aged even a, a few years from the makeup or whatever to try to match up the, the original film doesn't work well. They had a double for, for Regan's possessed makeup. Yeah. Cause Linda Blair refused to, to do that anymore. I don't blame her. <laughs> I, I think she, you know, when she was younger, she went through a lot there. I, I think yeah. those who said that they liked the exorcist too better. They, a lot, their bone of contention is they felt that Linda Blair was exploited mm. in the exorcist. I'm not sure I completely agree with it. It was just putting such a, it was just people were just not used to seeing something that dark and seeing like what appeared to be a sweet, innocent girl next door being possessed by a demon. And, and so they went William freaking and like they went, they went for it. And, you know, from everything I understand, like, and it was as safe a, a set as, as they could get, but it was just really nasty stuff that was, she had to say. And right. And right. And, and the story. it's, Sounds like, you know, for some of those practical effects with the harness work and stuff, like it, it was grueling, yeah. very, uh, very difficult to shoot. And yeah. it's a masterpiece. I mean, obviously wanted to revisit the role and, you know, so I, it, yeah, I guess it's really kind of maybe controversial or unpopular as far as the way most people go. But I, I think between the two of us, we're, you know, just two thumbs up for the Exorcist 2 heretic. I don't and need to be popular. I No, I, I don't. I never happened, so, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it becomes less and less a goal as I get older. So it does. I I, I feel like people need to give it a shot and look at it with Try fresh eyes, and maybe don't read the internet before you see it and form your maybe. own opinion. Because I didn't. Yeah. It was afterwards too that I read up on it, but I had heard enough people say that they ruined the legacy of The Exorcist. That's not true at all. I mean, the, you can always put on The Exorcist. It's always going to creep you out. It's a great horror movie. And every yes. horror movie has a sequel. Even Rosemary's Baby had a made-for-TV sequel, and then there was a sure. TV show, miniseries version of it. That doesn't diminish the original and, and the impact of the original. No, I think, you know, some franchises the ending to a particular, you know, to the first movie, you can tell there's going to be sequels. And so if the subsequent sequels aren't good, it can kind of diminish the enjoyment of the first. But when you're talking about The Exorcist, that movie is a complete story. Like you can watch that standalone film and never see two or three and and you're fine. And if you do go on to watch Exorcist 2 or Exorcist 3, which I would recommend doing, it's still so completely separate that it's yeah. like it's the Exorcist is untouchable as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah, nothing's going to touch The Exorcist, but The Exorcist 2 is not as bad as people say it is. Agreed.
Every day, Jacob Singer goes to work. What's wrong? Uh, it's one of those days. And every day, he wonders what is happening to him. Maybe it's the pressure, Jake. They're like demons, Jess. They weren't human. What were they, Jake? Then look at your hand. You have a very strange line. See, according to this, you're already dead. <laughs> coming after me i don't know who they are or what they are but they're gonna get me and i'm scared jake i've seen them too maybe the demons are real he's running 106 feet this is barbaric i can get rid of the demons who are you i can block the ladder who are you taking me where am i where do you want to go Home. This is your home. You're dead. I'm not dead. What are you then? I'm alive. Jacob's Ladder, I put high on my favorite horror movies of the 1990s list on Rankin Review. And it's just this movie that I think is what was kind of dumped. The studio didn't know what to do with it. I think Paramount had given up on it, but then some others came in and financed its release. They kind of put it in early into, I believe, early 1991. It's kind of in the same stretch of time where The Silence of the Lambs came out and started to build up the legitimacy of horror movies for a short period of time, I guess, amongst mainstream audiences. This is such an intelligent film. It is a mystery, and I, I almost wish I could go back in time and watch it for the first time, where I can be just as lost and kind of horrified by what's going on as Tim Robbins' character is. There's a lot of elements going on, but essentially Tim Robbins plays a character, he's, I don't think it spoils things, but he he is mourning the death of, of one of his children. And he's also a Vietnam War veteran who went through some like really traumatic stuff. And he's trying to uncover some mysteries uh, about his past while he's suffering a case of dissociation. And he has to try to figure out what's really happening and what's not real through the arc of the film. And again, this is one I don't want to ruin the end for, but I, I think when we find out what happens, it is a perfect ending to a very, very underrated film. Great early performance from Tim Robbins. He was kind of saying he took this role because he was getting cast in a lot of comedies kind of after Bull Durham and I think this kind of was the bridge into the player and Shawshank Redemption and the later serious films that, that he did and it I, there's some sequences and some images here that are legitimately scary I mean I it's from the writer of Ghost and when you can actually see some themes that overlap between Jacob's Ladder and Ghost yet they're dramatically different films I like Ghost a lot this is a more complex plot and Adrian Lynn, I guess he sort of became a controversial director later on when he directed that remake of Lolita. He was at this point, you know, this was just after the success of Fatal Attraction. And I think he does a beautiful job of directing this film. The more times you see it, the more hints you see what's really happening. And all the religious imagery and the, you know, the set decoration and art direction is about perfect as far as 
all of these hints that we have what's going on apparently all of the effects were practical and some things that look yep. like they were done not done that way were kind of done there on you know in the studio at the time i really like this movie great cast a lot of familiar faces pop up here and there you mentioned pro taylor vince as a very crucial role in the film we see him it's one of the vietnam uh, buddies early on ving rames before long before mm-hmm. pulp fiction uh, an actor i really like she's since passed uh, elizabeth pena plays tim robbins girlfriend and we don't quite know what this character is about as the film goes on there's these sweet romantic scenes and then there's other scenes where you're like what what is she about i'm gushing about it i i know there are some problems i'll go to my notes to find the problems that i wrote down to be super <laughs> critical but jacob's letter I, I i just love it and i'd, I'd love it if uh, more people discovered this film well that makes two of us this is one of my favorite films of all time. It's um, up there on my list. It's way good. up on the list. It's not the favorite favorite, but it's 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 high. I just I love it so much. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate this about this movie is is what a blend it is of horror and drama. And there's little moments of levity. And, mm-hmm. and those humorous moments are peppered in in just the right places to keep you from like completely losing it on <laughs> on the darker scenes. It's just a it's a beautiful story. And this movie to me is it's an experience. And yeah. there's just this mood that washes over you. And and I think the way that it was the way that it was shot visually, the color palette and the music that's used. It, it just, there's a very like dreamy quality to this film, which really lends itself to a story where as a viewer, you're questioning right along with the, with the protagonist, what is real, what is not real, what is past, what is present, what is happening. And Danny Aiello gives a great performance. He's in there. Yes. Oh, another lost recently. You know, and um, chiropractor. Chiropractor who always seemed to come and rescue Tim Robbins' character, one reason or another. How they light him is brilliant. It gives you. Yeah. as to what's going on really really the cool performance i think the chemistry between these actors between tim robbins and elizabeth benya between tim robbins and danny aiello all of the exchanges between characters in this film feel very authentic it feels like conversations that real people would have which is so funny because this movie is all about crazy surreal shit happening yes. yeah. but the characterization, the characters feel so real and their interactions feel so real that it's, you get, it's so hard not to get swept up in this story and, and in caring about the characters and what will happen to them. I mean, yes, the practical effects are awesome. And there's, there's little points, like there's, there's little things here and there. You could maybe nitpick on them, but visually this movie is very iconic. There are some really uh, arresting might be the word <laughs> visuals in this film that once you see them, they're like burned into your brain and you will mm-hmm. never forget them. I love There's it. one of my favorite sequences and I have so many and I feel like yeah, I could do a pod like uh, this where like Matt who focuses sometimes on one movie, you could have a giant like three hour podcast just trying to deconstruct this film. But the the subway sequence at the beginning is I, I lived in New York city for a bit and I don't mind the subway. I like, I actually like it. It's, it's a great way yeah. to you know get around New York and anywhere in New York, anytime. 
but there's something so horrifying and claustrophobic about when Tim Robbins, he, when he cannot get out of that subway and every subway car that comes by has these kind of ghoul, like almost faceless characters. And I'm like, what yeah. is going on? And I'm, again, I, I wish I had been old enough to see it in, in theaters because you're, you start off watching this, you know, this horrifying Vietnam sequence right up there with the Oliver Stone films, like a platoon or a born on the 4th of July type of sequence. And then we have him in, you know, New York and he goes somewhere else. And, we're just left with this puzzle that we're trying to figure out the whole time. And it's just such a satisfying conclusion. There could be a a way that, you know, if they had decided to go a different way, the screenplay that, you know, they could just leave you just confused and like, well, that was too artistic, but I think it was the right blend of like, there, there is an arc and there is a purpose to everything that happens. And whether you like the ending or not, and what, what this is all about, it is still, you know, a complete film from, you know, beginning, middle and end. As I said, I like David Lynch films. There's some scenes which are very, Lynchian in here uh, but you're getting a lot more answers from this film than you would ever get from uh, a traditional David Lynch film so well, see I'm not a fan of Lynch oh you don't you you're one of the which, yeah, which surprises people because I mean I like weird stuff so <laughs> it it I and but for whatever reason I just could never get on board with David Lynch yeah you're not alone no I'm not alone no but, but I, I definitely I think I a lot of friends who are huge fans yeah um I'm just not one of them but yeah. but yeah, this film, yes, surreal. There's some really bonker stuff in this movie, but there is like the story is is moving in a particular direction. And that first time you don't know what that what direction it's going, but it does get you there. And there is a purpose. And I, I would say in subsequent watches, you know, sometimes when a movie, you know, when when a movie has a mystery that needs to be solved, and once you've seen the movie and you know the conclusion, it can be difficult to enjoy subsequent viewings because you're like, well, I already, you know, I know, but this is a movie that I feel like even once you know how it ends in subsequent viewings, you do, you look for like the little clues. I think too, this movie tackles a lot of really kind of universal concerns about grief and about loss and about, and about the experiences of life and death. And what it all means and what life means and and that idea of what's real and what's not real. Those are things that concern all of us. And so it unpacks them in a way that I think continues to be interesting no matter how many times I watch this movie. There's PTSD, mental yes. health. One of the most horrifying sequences of supposed mental hospital sequence where he's strapped in. Oh, yeah. That is, that's vicious, vicious filmmaking. I mean, that's rivals any of these so-called torture porn you know films oh for sure it, it's not gory i mean it's just it has a purpose and it, it again leads to a great moment with danny aiello kind of rescuing tim robbins once oh, again it's so, one of my favorites yeah no he comes in and then all the work he's gonna have to do to to get his back in place and get him feeling good again that, that part is great I, I mean i'm looking at you know i, I feel like I'm singing the praises and again I have to say some you know some criticisms just to say them even I even have here that you know kind of talking myself out of there there is a sequence in here I won't ruin too much about with a big car explosion that car explosion is so over the top it's like from some sort of a you know like a Jerry Bruckheimer produced Michael Bay action film or something but when you know what's going on, I think it could be justifiable. But yeah. just for a moment, I was like, uh, 
that's maybe a little bit much when as out there as it is you said it is kind of it is very much grounded in reality i think you know, it, it's important elements to have but it does get very sidetracked with explanations of like uh the uh the vietnam the drug conspiracies you're not wrong you know it, it especially kind of late second act into the third beginning of the third act it kind of bogs the movie down there's a, a a character who's a bit of an exposition machine who's this kind of interesting mysterious character before that the score i like uh, maurice jari i believe did the score i i think maybe again it was very much characteristic of this time it maybe gets a little bit much a little bit heavy-handed towards the end of the film but it's it leads to kind of a, the earned moment that we have at the end there so that's me nitpicking that's me like stretching digging digging for something because i i could not recommend jacob's ladder more than i think those who haven't checked it out need to find a way to see it and i i think it's out there and it's fairly accessible it's not one of these sad stories where there's these movies from the 90s that have yeah no because of you you can't find it i'm i'm not i I know that it's streaming right now and it kind of bounces around it was on amazon prime for a while and then it was on hbo max i think if you want to rent it i think it was on itunes i don't know if it still is but i'm I'm sure it is it's and this is such an influential movie i think it's a movie that that doesn't have the biggest audience but the people that did see it were influenced by it. Yeah, I I mean, I could gush about this movie. I feel like it was kind of foreshadowing the greatest parts of 1990 cinema, which all led up mm. to that amazing 1999 year. And, you know, I, I think those filmmakers who were successful later in the decade had seen Jacob's Ladder and took some ideas from that. It's a fabulous movie, and I'm, I'm glad that you feel the same way. I think you you like it even more than I do, which is... Uh, oh, I live difficult. for this movie. I. Yeah. I'm kind of like on this mission. I want everyone to see it, to experience it, even just once. I think, yeah, see it once. Even if you don't like it, you've given it a chance. But I right. I think people will like it. And it has some horrific, there's a party scene, which is a little bit freaky too. So I can't recommend it to people who really don't like horror or anything like that. But I, I don't think this is going to be like a, a as hard a horror movie to get behind because it has the dr- dramatic stuff and it has some other elements to it as opposed to telling somebody to watch a random slasher movie and... And right. Like it if they don't like horrific movies. But again, if you're tuning into a show about religious horror, then you probably like horror movies that are probably. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say about Jacob's Ladder? Uh, just that it was a pleasure to watch it again. I, I watched, I rewatched this one quite a bit, yeah. but any excuse, really. And if you look for him, George Costanza, before he was George Costanza, Jason Alexander has <laughs> a role as a lawyer. That Louis Black is in there, too. That's right. Yeah. He's the doctor. He's Louis <laughs> Black. All these comedic actors that uh, yeah. it's almost like a, a secondary theme of this show, like... We almost forgot little Macaulay Culkin. Yes, yes, of course. Uncredited. Macaulay, yes, he is uncredited. He is just so adorable. It's He really is like the cutest kid, Tim Robbins' son in the movie. Yeah, some really emotional scenes in there. And I, I do believe this was around the same time as Home Alone came out. I was after, slightly after Home Alone was released. So he'd been in Uncle Buck and a few other things. He was... He was kind of like that kid that they would cast, the cute kid in mm-hmm. movies, but it's not uh, Macaulay Culkin performance that everybody thinks of. And yeah, he's really good. His scenes with Tim Robbins are, are really good, and he's crucial to the end of the film as well. So I said it several times, but check out Jacob's Ladder. Please do. 
next award is for the best performance by an actress in a supporting role. For Rachel Rachel, Estelle Parsons. For The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Sandra Locke. For Funny Girl, Kay Medford. For Rosemary's Baby, Ruth Gordon. For Faces, Lynn Carlin. The winner is Ruth Gordon and Rosemary's Baby. how encouraging a thing like this is. <laughs> the, the first film that I was ever in was in 1915, and here we are, and it's 1969. Actually, I don't know why it took me so long, though I don't think, you know, that I'm backward. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Bill, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Roman, and thank you, Mia. And thank all of you who voted for me, and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. Carmelita, thank you for being on the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Thank you for just responding to this weird Canadian's Twitter message and oh man, this has been so much fun and I hope uh, we can have you back on the show. I, you, I know you are a regular guest on several movie podcasts. Uh, what what other podcasts would you like to, to sh do a shout out for? Oh, wow. I've been so fortunate to, to connect with people who love movies, who have these amazing podcasts and I'm, I'm always so happy to get to talk movies. And, and now also with you. So thank you for, for asking me to come on the show. Um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've guested for the Film Alchemist podcast, Film Feast, Schlock and Awe, Inside the Sequel, Cobwebs. Oh my goodness. Oh, uh, Moving the Needle, 20th Century Movie Club, which is a series for the Dana Buckler show. I know I'm forgetting something. And if I am, I, I apologize, friends. But yeah, no, I mean, I love talking movies. So I'm, I'm always happy to do it and, and talk with other people who love movies too. So yeah, thank you again. Movie fans and those who love podcasts, I just want to promote as many shows as possible. And I know some have bigger budgets than others. Mine's very, very independent. But I also know like Film Feast, for example, too. He, I kind of related in, in some ways. Matt was a guest several times and then uh, decided to put, you know, put on his own podcast. And so yeah. again, the yeah, Film Feast, I want to, at the end too, I'll, I'll mention that. But please, please check that one out. But any one of those shows too are great. So thank you for making time. You're, you're a busy person being the guest on all of these different shows so, <laughs> so we're Here gonna there. we're gonna get down to the the points and so we'll just go one movie at a time here how many points did you give constantine 11 and rosemary's baby 14 the amityville horror six and children of the corn seven and the exorcist 2 the heretic eight and finally jacob's ladder 14 
14. Now it looks like you spread out your points. I did. I did. I, and I was trying to be strategic. Like, you know, some of these, I was just like, you know, they, they definitely have to have a bump. They, they need, they need to be up there because you can't get rid of these. You can't get rid of these. Um, so yeah. So as I total them up, this, this is going to be interesting, but I'll go through uh, my points. To be honest, my points are in many ways in different places than yours. A couple of them are, are pretty close, but I don't think we're going to get into a fight over this or anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, Constantine is a bit of a struggle for me. I, I only gave it four points. I, I'm glad I enjoyed it more this time, but in comparison to some of the other movies, mm. I don't, for whatever reason, like yeah. it as much. And maybe I'll get there. The next time I see it, I might be kicking myself for only giving four points. <laughs> I, I wasn't as good at spreading my points out. I, as I said, Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I gave it 20 points, so I gave it a, a whole ton of points. Amityville Horror, I gave nine points. I respect it. It just was kind of in a bit in the middle for me. Then the Children of the Corn next, I only gave it five points. I, I can't, in good conscience, you know, give it much more than Constantine. Constantine's a better movie, but it, it's just <laughs> some sort of a soft place in my heart for this strange, strange movie based on a whatever seven-page short story by Stephen There's King. There's something about it. Something, something interesting about it. I, I don't know. And the much maligned Exorcist Two Heretic. I gave seven points to. Again, I recognize its problems, so I was trying to balance that out. But I, I kind of didn't want to lose that movie, so maybe got a few more points than than yeah. a couple of the others. And then Jacob's Ladder, again, singing his praises, I, I gave it 15. Not as many as Rosemary's Baby, but I, I really, uh, really enjoy that. So I, I put the majority of my points into Rosemary's Baby and Jacob's Ladder, and then it was kind of a bit Makes of a, sense. Interesting how the totals work, though, as I'm looking at it here. The top movie was Rosemary's Baby with 34 points, followed with 29 points with Jacob's Ladder. Then three-way tie third all with 15 points constantine the exorcist 2 heretic and the amityville horror so the movie oh. uh, they got 13 points and was the lowest six places children of the corn so our worst fear happened children of the corn i only <laughs> own a digital copy of so you have to come up with some sort of a i don't know if punishment is the right word for me for something i have to do connected to children of the corn since i can't get rid of it really but oh man this yeah that's a good question okay okay wait the actor that plays malachi what's that guy's name i have it here track down a courtney Gaines movie and watch it watch a courtney See, Gaines movie yeah something tells me it probably didn't get much better <laughs> acting wise so yeah yeah the look but uh <laughs> he's in a lot of stuff i just brought up his he was in Back to the Future. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll find one where I think the movie is going to be painful, though, because this, this okay. is supposed there to be a experience for me. So Nice. And I'll let you know which one that is. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you again for being on here, and I, I, I'm looking forward to our, our next chance to, to do a show together and you know, Absolutely. I, I can understand why everybody has you on as a as a guest because you're such a great guest and bring insight oh, and energy and, and fun to talking movies. So thank you again. 
Just before I go, I, I want to, of course, mention Film Feast. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm getting the guests that I had today is because of, uh, of Matt and Film Feast. Uh, Rank and Review, I always mention, it was kind of like my the father podcast to uh, the Shelf Shutting Movie Show. Also, A Lifetime of Hallmark, I want to mention that one, where uh, three brave fellows watch either a Lifetime or a Hallmark movie and do almost a shot-by-shot analysis of it. And it's hilarious. And and so uh, I hope you uh, check those out or check out any movie podcast or any independent podcast. And it's always a pleasure to put these episodes on and hopefully uh, movie fans enjoy it. So keep sharing this with the movie fans in your life. And please be kind and be safe and whatever your views are, just, um, you know, let, let people live their lives. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm happy to focus uh, so much of my interest and time on movies. Movies I feel are less divisive, hopefully than uh, some <laughs> of the other stuff true. in the world. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure.